Hello and welcome to the brand new Give Us Time podcast series. During this series, we'll be talking with our ambassador, Scotty Derrick, about his life in the military. For those of you who don't know who Scotty is, Scotty served for 10 years as a corporal and training instructor in the Army Royal Logistic Corps. Joining us alongside Scotty is the Give Us Time Managing Director, Rupert Forrest, an Army veteran who served with the Black Watch. Um, the first question we're going to go and ask today is um, towards Scotty. And basically, Scotty, um, can you go and tell us a bit on how you began your military career? Hi everyone, yes, um, how I began my military career. Uh, yeah, it was kind of a difficult path uh, leading up to joining, but the main thing for me to join the army was I, I was presented with two options when I was at the rugby club in Dumfries. Um, it was either one of the managing directors said to me, young Derek, you've uh, got two choices. One is to go to jail the way you're going well, the other is to join the army. So I heeded his, his advice and I went down to the careers office and I joined, well, signed up into the into the club, I suppose. How old were you? I was 18, 17 and a half, 18, um, I think, when I, I, I joined in the um, Royal Logistic Corps. So what was it like then? What was, you know, um, I mean, as an 18-year-old first going in, um, what was it like? Well, basic training, like anything, you just, you get stripped of everything. Um, your home life kind of disappears, it gets put on hold, and you're given or presented with a new sort of family. And that, that family is called a direct and staff, or as we call them, corporals or staff or sir or ma'am. And what they say kind of goes, your clothes, civilian clothes are given away, or taken away and you're given uniform to put on. You get told when to eat, you get told when to run, you get told when to sleep. Well, <laughs> they tell you you're supposed to go to sleep, but you um, you have to do things to make sure the room's intact for the morning. But then th that was just a wake up call. You know, that was just them getting you to be in a position where one, you can listen to orders, two, you can follow orders, and three is be a body of men or women to move from one part to another. And yeah, definitely it was, was an eye-opener in basic training. My basic training was down in Purbright in Surrey. Um, I don't know about you, Rupert. I don't know where your basic training was. Well, I was uh, I was quite lucky. Strangely, and Scotty and I've known each other for a while now, but slightly similar in some ways, uh, in that I was at school, finished uh, my A-levels and luckily had a place at Nottingham University to read psychology and zoology and it wasn't because of my brains I was just quite a good rugby player and that's that's actually the link and I thought am I going to go to university and play rugby for three years or get on with joining the army which is what I always wanted to do so I headed off to Sandhurst down in Surrey uh, and did my training there and it, it it sounds exactly the same actually i just remember being a number and i really hated being a number did you that did you have that problem yeah it was either a number or crow or whatever they wanted to call you yeah <laughs> yeah but everything well, you did you had a bloody number on you and yet yeah. for the first bit and it was just you know i am not just two four five three one four three six officer cadet forest um and I remember that number now. Everything was about this bloody number, and you weren't sort of, you were just a person in green and a number. But it did have a purpose, and it's been good stead. And I thank Scotty too. 
you know, I, I, by the end of it, it was great. At the time, it was pretty horrific. Really. <laughs> yeah. It's absolutely a massive culture shock. Uh, yeah. And people say anything different. You know, if some people's, like, my, my mother was a nurse in the RAF, so before I went into the army, I did all the ironing. I knew how to wash my clothes. I knew how to polish shoes. So that bit was okay. Learning to um, accept what someone, learning to keep the mouth shut was a, a, a quite a hard skill to master. Um, you know, don't do as I say, do as I do. But it was, um, yeah, I had my bell rung a couple of times in training for speaking when I should have been listening. Um, but, hey, it's all part of the game. You play a game for the time the training's up. And then you move on to either your trade training. Like I went then up to uh, Lakensfield where I did all my driver training. And then after three, four months of advanced driver training, then I got posted then to 8th Transport Regiment uh, in Catterick in the Royal Logistic Corps. And again, too, being from with a troop of guys and girls, do your training and then that's it. You end up, your boxes are delivered or MFO are sent up to Patrick, to the quartermasters. You tip up at the gate, show your ID card, you're a newbie, report down to the squadron sergeant major, march in to the brass line on the floor, make sure your feet are perfectly correct to it. And, uh, and then that was it. I went, I got issued a troop, met the troop staffy, troop officer, and then got given accommodation. So the next couple of days was like find my feet in that. And then like basic training again, you don't know anybody. Um, you may have heard some rumors of people that you can keep in touch with or it might help you on your way. But other than that, it's just get in, get stuck in with the job that you signed up for and um, see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, there's, so there's quite an interesting connection um, is what we were speaking about before, uh, before we started recording this, because obviously Scotty and Rupert as they said, they know each other. Uh, Scotty grew up in um, Dumfries, um, and we were just uh, speaking about uh, quite a traumatic experience that happened with Scotty when you were 12 years old, did you go and say? Um, yeah, that, that was right. I was just asking Rupert if he had ever been or was involved with the help and support of the logistics side of the Lockerbie disaster. Um, I was 12 year old and about five past or ten past seven I was on my way back from Lockerbie with, sorry, just about 10 to 7, I was on my way back with my father from Lockerbie Golf Course. Um, and I think the plane got blown up and it landed uh, in the town of Lockerbie. Well, some of it landed in Lockerbie. The wing and the fuselage went through in Sherwood Crescent. And I remember driving in my dad's car and I was a little tiny radio and we heard a boom and a, it was like the earth shook. And I remember my dad turned around and said, oh, we'll have to go back and see if we can help or find out what it was. And we got up there and I didn't know what it was, but it was a massive crater, absolutely huge dugout of the ground for maybe a football field, football field and a half um, gouge there. Things were on fire, cars were wrecked. And I remember getting there and just trying to help. I remember my dad had a couple of torches because it was the 21st of December. Um, so we were walking along, uh, local police were there. And then about 10, 20 minutes, the Dumfries and Galloway Fire and Rescue and ambulance and police all landed. There was more emergency services there than you could shake a stick at. And I was just highlighting there as we were walking along, it was really, really sad to see 
you know, as 12 year old being put in a line and then you're looking at, you know, kiddies toys or melted or burnt or, um, and then you had to either report it or anything that looked like some sort of wiring or anything like that, you had to call the policeman over where photographs and x-rays were taken for investigations. But yeah, that was 12 year old and that's kind of stuck with me a little bit, um, especially when it comes to anniversaries and such. Um, you know, if I stayed on for another 10 minutes, then as I said, I would be a statistic with the 11 other poor people who died in that avenue right along in Lockerbie and the other 270 passengers were later found and recovered, but it was a terrible act. And I was only asking Rupert if he was um, supplying any help or support. Because yeah, Rupert, you were obviously currently serving in the army at, um, at that moment. And um, do you want to kind of, you know, tell us what um, you were going and uh, mentioning? Yeah, well, I, I, I had to look it up because I'm getting so ancient. The, um, so I was actually based in, in Berlin at the time and I was uh, I was coming back with my wife uh, and brand new baby uh, back to, to Scotland to do a course in Warminster. But I'm, I missed the whole thing. But I did have a few friends of mine who were involved in, you know, they were they were crashed out uh, the military in Scotland to try and, you know, assist uh, the police because it was such a big thing. Uh, and some of them were quite young uh, lieutenants and uh, they were taking their troops up into the hills to try and, you know, quite a lot of it, the, the uh, carnage, if I could put it like that, uh, actually fell in farmland over some quite rough terrain over a very big distance. I mean, actually, Scotty was mentioning earlier, you know, I think the the nose comb is about three miles from the, the village. Three miles, yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, so it, it had an effect on some of my friends, uh, certainly, but uh, on that occasion, I wasn't actually involved um, in it, uh, but it it certainly made everybody think. It certainly did. Yeah, but I, I think my experience, Johnny, was pretty similar as well. You know, I, I finished my basic training, uh, went off to Warminster to do my infantry bit, uh, where I was told everything I'd learned at, at the factory was, was wrong. And I had to learn a whole new load of, you know, rules and regulations and the way infantry did stuff. Uh, and then turned up uh, in my platoon, uh, in Germany, uh, Black Watch base uh, in Verlin, Germany. Uh, great place, living in this sort of weird uh, Canadian camp in the middle of nowhere. And uh, took over an armoured platoon um, where I was told, well, everything you learn to Warminster, actually forget it because this is the way the Black Watch does it. So I was, I was being sort of re-educated every Every few months, so I'd get, I'd get, all right, I've learned all of this, I'm brilliant, and then get, forget it, this is the way it's now done. So, uh, yeah, it was an experience, and you just soaked up information. Uh, and I got sorted out by the platoon. Exactly, much. that's the way they do it. They actually, they mould you into a way of how things work in a, a squadron, a regiment, platoon. Um, there's a certain way of working it, and a certain way to follow what the people have done before you. So yeah, it's all right getting the basics of how to do things, but yeah, you actually get a better understanding of how things actually move and work and tick as you get into the squadron and into the troop. And then you just learn and pick things up as just Rupert, she said there too. And his platoon just kept him right. You know, that's well, as right as he could be, I suppose. <laughs> um, 
You know, <laughs> but, but, but it's funny because you know, as as you do, you're used to pitching in and you get trained. You know, you've got a and it's your natural instinct anyway. And I remember getting back uh, after a company O group, and uh, we were going out and patrol that night, and we were digging in. So I started digging the hole, <laughs> and the radio op said. What are you doing? And I said, well, yeah, we're digging a hole. He said, I can dig a hole. I can't write the orders. If you get the orders wrong, we'll be wandering around all night. You're going to, you're going to eat and get some orders done and I'll dig the hole. And I thought, right, okay, yep, I'll do what I But of course he was right. You know, we all, we all did what we could to make the thing work. Uh, and it did work. And I've, I've really enjoyed the people. I think that was the main thing for me, was the, was the people. Didn't you think, Scotty? Absolutely, it is the people. And you, you miss them terribly because, as I said from the start in basic training, you, you build a relationship where you know exactly who's on your left or the right or who's in which vehicle, front, rear, and what, and what goes on. And you, you live with these guys and girls for, for weeks and months and years and several operations away. Um, it is, you do become close. And then when you move on or get posted, one of the things for me, Rupert, is... Rupert as a platoon will be posted with the same men or move to different areas uh, as in regiments. So we got posted all over uh, the place. Yeah. So we got yeah. cataract, Germany. Um, Germany was the ideal place. I remember in basic training, and I said this when I spoke at the uh, Give Us Time fundraiser, it was um, they give you a posting preference and you get to put three um locations on where you would maybe like to be posted so i remember putting canada cyprus and germany so that's how i ended up in cataract which <laughs> it was that <laughs> i don't know how that worked but um there you go that was that was that so i ended up in, in sunny cataract um but the only good thing just along the a66 up the road a little bit and then i was back into god's country <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I had no idea so you could so you could fill out a form and and request obviously it didn't work out for you scotty in this occasion but the the idea was that you could you could write where um where you requested to go obviously canada and cataract are very different slightly but again it began with c um yeah. so i think it was just a little bit of oh we'll just give these guys a little bit of, of hope um but then we'll just fill out the form and then no you're going Derek. no Catterick, no, sorry, you made a mistake there. No, no. <laughs> up the road, up north, you go, son. That'll do. So, yeah, I think we all need that perception, don't we, Scotty? That you know, <laughs> that the the poster is going to be influenced by our preference form. And you no. do, because uh, you know, it's the same for everyone in the military. You go, oh, I'd like to do this and that, and this job next, and they go, nah. <laughs> yeah, there's a big. There's a for big, me, for me, it was box. where the regiment was. You know. The regiment got posted around all over the place, and I got so I'd go off and do a staff job somewhere, and then come back to the regiment wherever it was, um, and then we'd move. The regiment would move, and I'd spend another year in the next place, and then get posted out. So I was getting sort of, you know, it, it was quite frenetic at times. I thought I think I'd, Shorter's posting was about four months in Turnhill, of which. I spent a month in Canada and a month in London. So, you know, Kate had Sandy. Um, 
we we uh, half unpacked the house. I went off and did the stuff, uh, and then we moved to Hong Kong. And you sort of go, yeah, fine, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, that's what oh, it was. Poor Scotty, he got Hong Kong, Canada. Honest, honest goodness, it sounds Germany. like Rupert was on a busman's holiday. <laughs> yeah. and then some of us have to work for a living <laughs> no, so, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. so we obviously i mean there's a level of you know um there's a fun side i think of as i think we've touched upon here within um the uh the military but as as with you know the military's purpose and um, is when they're called up um so i kind of uh move on now to um um, Scotty, for your kind of first experience of um, of war, which is a very, very sadly why we need the military. Um, what was your kind of um, first experience of war? Do you mind telling us a little bit about that? Well, in the 90s, it was um, the, the Iraq um, stuff was in the start of that. And then we thought there might be something else coming up. But I remember when I got to Cataract, the first thing was the main deployment was going to be to Northern Ireland. Uh, a rural mint tour of six months. Um, yeah, came across here uh, to Northern Ireland in 1996. Um, and that's when I kind of witnessed the, I, I put it, the worst that humanity could do to each other. I kind of witnessed that on a daily basis. And unfortunately, that kind of thing that I have seen and felt and experienced has stuck with me. Um, so that was my first kind of major experience of conflict. I would say, between, but again, people on the United Kingdom, we, we forget Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom, and you're actually trying to stop one side, destroy the other, basically, and it was destroyed, and some of the stuff was absolutely brutal, absolutely brutal, yeah. um, and that's the only word you could say, and Rupert mentioned it about, um, in Lockerbie, the word carnage, it was carnage. The stuff that the guys were doing, both sides, um, it just it just wasn't nice. But um, yeah, that was my sort of, um, that's where I first got my uh, trauma, I would say. I don't want to delve into it too much. Um, but um, Rupert, you were over here as well, weren't you? Yeah, I, do, I think in all, I, do, I did four tours. So I, I spent about two and a half years. One was, uh, I spent a year resident. Uh, but overall, about two and a half years on ops uh, in Ireland, and um, yeah, it sort of shapes shaped my my life really. You know, I was there as a platoon commander, uh, young guy. Uh, I was a company ops officer down in the border, um, which was interesting. That was all um, helicopter work because the roads were were dodgy, uh, and then uh, a bit of a resident tour, and then back into to Belfast again. Um, uh, for a final sort of six month there when I was, I suppose, company commander there. So I've sort of stepped through a number of roles there and it's always very different. But actually one of the things that, you know, actually talking to Scotty uh, about these things is, you know, you are reliant, the Black Watch was reliant on medics and we had a large number of RLC guys working with us and providing our transport and everything else without which we wouldn't have got around. And um, we were quite a lucky 
uh, battalion is it lucky you never know um, we took casualties but well, we didn't have many fatalities and um, which was great um, but you know inevitably people pick up under that sort of pressure uh, they see and witness things they, they really wouldn't have wanted to see uh, and in a way you take that on I think I'm right in saying Scotty is you know you've seen it and dealt with it uh, almost in a way so other people don't have to you're trying to keep it away from uh, the civilian population um, so they don't have to think about these things yeah uh, I might have overemphasized that a bit but there we are <laughs> <laughs> no it was it was absolutely it was um, it was really really scary and you know as a 20 year old lad they don't teach you that side you do training and you go and do exercises and get yourself ready to go but from you just being there in the center of it and seeing it and feeling it and when things are directed towards you that's when that there's no fear is a is a terrible thing and, and i was probably scared of my wits um as a young 20 year old boy um but yeah but now looking at it now northern ireland has changed dramatically over the years up banner was on for so many years it's now uh, a few years londonderry was the uk city of culture it's 2014 it was but it's um things have came on leaps and bounds in northern ireland and um, don't get me wrong there's still small pockets of people that want to take it back to the old days um but there's a lot more that want to move on and progress which is that's that's the idea behind the whole thing is as you said, Alex, you know, we're uh, employed in the military to one, serve our country and two, protect it. And one of the things was we had to try and peacekeep in our own backyard just as much as anybody else's. Um, yeah. and, 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 and that was it. So we were trying to there. But again, too, going back over things, military made some mistakes um, while they were over here. But again, it's um, one of those things when it comes to a conflict. If you've never been at that place before, things are new, things are difficult. You just don't know, and you just pick it up as you go. But unfortunately, there was a lot of lives lost on um, on both sides, um, yeah, yeah. which which is always um, sad. Um, but yeah, it's. I don't know if you've been over since. A lot of times, Rupert, have you or been over since? Yeah, I've been back. Um, sadly, just for court cases, uh, not my own. I hate my. Uh, no yours, no. And uh, but, but that's the way of things. I, I I have because I love Google Earth. I don't know if you're a Google Earth person. I I've had a look uh, at some of what I'd call the old patch, as you, as Scotty and I would know. And I've had a look at the patch. And actually, exactly as you're saying, Scotty, you know, you look at the old photos of the place, and you go back there now, and you see, say, Turf Lodge. Uh, was part of my, my bit for what what a great place now you know you look at it now and it's got it's nowhere i mean it's just changed beyond beyond all comprehension yeah and i think that's great you know it's really nice that people are now living in much better housing you know it's a looks like a nice place uh, and that's part of why we were there too was to try and you know even the fact we weren't particularly popular I'd say in that part of town um, you know their lives are better and and you know there are more of them about because we were there than 
there would have been and that that's good you know from my perspective that's really good uh, and an achievement for everybody and again too for the for the the police service of northern ireland now the psnr yeah. what a lot of people don't realize was that the police only kind of went out when there was an army presence with them at yeah. one stage because it was too unsafe for the police to go out i remember going out on patrols and stuff and having a policeman again to who could stop search or arrest and there was 12 15 and then every you know i mean a policeman wouldn't go out unless he had an army um, support with them uh, yeah it was just it was just too dangerous even for the police um when rupert was over before my time it was probably yeah we'd have a, five livelier as well so we had five to get to get one policeman out uh we used to take five teams of four so 20 guys uh, all satellising around one police. police. Yeah, to keep him safe. So we'd go to the police station, pick him up, take him out, and then head back to our base. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was not... Um, and, you know, quite often you're out on your own. So actually, you know, you have the powers of arrest, you can stop vehicles, you can question people and do all this stuff, which was, you know, um, it was necessary at the time. And, uh, you know, it was great going back many years later and finding actually we were pretty well stuck in barracks um for my last tour and the police could go out on their own and and, you, and i thought yeah that's great you know it's a bit dull for us but it was progress and um you know i was quite happy not to have the you know shilling half sixpence uh going on before i went on patrol scotty knows yeah. what i mean yeah what absolutely mean, what does that mean scotty what's it, what's it? we won't oh. go there there are a few moments let's as, say as rupert was saying we're going in teams of four they were normally called a brick yeah um they were called a brick four men so it looked like obviously a brick patrolling either a section commander a few other guys we had little things on our chest called the violent joker or the vj it was always yeah. beeping and then you have to remember too alex that when you got stopped or moved anywhere you had to go into your position so again you had to if you had to go firm you had to check five meters if you're there longer check 20. and again too you're looking as rupert mentioned earlier that when he was a bit on the borders everywhere you had to fly is because they had um, snipers and they were blowing up cars as you were driving along the road um and there was big signs saying snipers at work um <laughs> <laughs> and they had um, illegal uh, vehicle checkpoints and stuff so it was wasn't as uh, safe so flying was a very good option um, and I think at one stage in Northern Ireland there was nearly was 20 or something thousand troops in the province at one stage so it was quite yeah. quite a lot back in the day um, but yeah you used to go farm onto the ground and then another thing that the guys used to carry was uh, sifters white or brown sifters it was like your um, radio jamming kit so if you were walking by somewhere and someone had a radio control or some sort of way to make things enlarge that mm. would break up the signal and again all this kit weighs a ton and again the old neba vests as we called them the bulletproof vest with a big square plate in the front and when you ran it used to slap you right <laughs> in the chin so you used yeah. to have a big rash all the way down here, which was uh, which was good. Oh. And, it was hot, and it was hot in the summer. <laughs> Running around all this kit in the summer. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, so, so going and moving from 
one war zone to the other and kind of you know you went from northern ireland and then eventually um both of you both ended up in kosovo um, yes. what was uh, so scotty scotty for you what was the difference though because obviously this isn't in the united kingdom this is a this is a completely different place um and this is obviously for you after northern ireland as well um what yeah. was that like i remember going to kosovo in 99 um and we were staying in the electric factory uh, just as you go into pristina it was kosovo was again um conflicted parts again people wearing civilian attire it wasn't the fact of you know militaries or armed groups or militias it was you know local populations against pop pop populations and but it was it was still edgy enough as you were driving around about the city. It was pretty, pretty gnarly. You know, you still had billions that were, were shot up completely devastated and people living around about it. But we're going to just jump back a little bit to um, in, uh, 97. I went to Bosnia and it was on a, uh, a stabilization force. And out there as logistics, we were supplying some of the outstations, the fuel, food, um, water, all the rest of the good things or carrying missile systems on the back of the trucks or even transporting troops. So it was a really massive eye opener from seeing what ethnic cleansing um, from one side to the other was absolutely brutal. And people living and you would see things that poor, you wouldn't expect, you know, over here people would be in an uproar, but that's just was the way of life. Um, again, I think as things move on, um, Bosnia or Macedonia are split. Apparently, it's became a, a tourist attraction. So things are tourist hotspot. I think that everything or the infrastructure has all changed and moved on with peace a lot better. But going back to Kosovo, yeah, it was it was pretty pretty gnarly. And again, too, there was, you heard a lot of commotion going on at night time and back then too we were 99 we were living in tents uh remember a big old green 12 by 12s or 18 by 34 or um horrible wet stinking tents and you're living in camp bed on camp beds and it was over uh winter and it was freezing absolutely freezing i remember jumping into one sleeping bag to go into another and then my clothes were hung up above me on a bungee and waking up in the morning and having to break your trousers to get them on and then go and get a bowl of water that's just been some poor buggers just let the old puffer billy outside. It's a big tank and it's dripped with fuel and it goes boom. You always know when someone's let it or put too much kerosene in it and that heated up like an old dust can full of water. You have to go and get a bowl of that, give yourself a shave and a wash, and then get ready for the day's um, tasks that were, were given to you. So that but, was for six months. You were you were living in was that were you living in that tent for six months then or Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, I mean, you've got into a little bit of detail about that, but compared to Northern Ireland, that must have been and I mean that must have been quite a, I mean it was like anything, you know, when you first move into a sort of area to take kind of set up and conduct bases, um, 
until the infrastructure gets put in place, that's what you that's what you slept in, or you slept in your, your vehicles, or if there was some sort of buildings you could maybe get in and take over and set up. That that's just the way it was. Um, I don't know when Rupert was there, um, but was it any different when you went there, Rupert? And about two years after you. So by then the infrastructure was in, and we were living in the police station down in in the city. Uh, which had the football ring at the back, Scotty, and, and that bombed out uh, basketball sports yeah. centre. Um, so yeah, but um, so it was mainly it was mainly about it was mainly about um, protecting the population from itself and each other. And certainly when I was there, there wasn't much hostility towards us. I think we were seen, you know, in a we had come in, we'd help them out. And we were there guarding people. You know, we had a block of flats that had uh, Serbs full of Serbs, which had, had RPG sevens fired at it. And you know, occasionally people would have a go at um, trying to shoot people up. You know, and we'd escort the kids uh, on a bus down to the Serb school south of the city and escort them home at the end of the day. And if someone wanted to go shopping, you know, they took a couple of soldiers from the base. But actually, you know, I was quite happy going out. I can take my my warrior uh, armored vehicle. We kept a few of those just to show that we had the capability. Uh, and the sights were very good. And he, I was quite happy going out and that with my crew um, uh, on our own. You know, as long as people knew where we were and we were on the radio, you didn't feel like, you know, former tours that Scotty and I have done. You didn't think you were going to get blown up or shot at every ten seconds. Um, <laughs> Not that you were every 10 seconds, but yeah, you know, that feeling had, had gone. So, uh, and in a way you were able to do more because a benign population will help you and talk to you and, and so on. So yeah, fascinating, but again, much the same thing. It was all about the people uh, and, you know, we worked a lot more closely with the UN police this time yeah. and the Kosovan police than we did uh and there were russians at the airport and so on so you met them in town occasionally so it was a fascinating environment you know we had a norwegian battalion i think didn't we to the north swedish battalion to the south and finnish battalion and two british battalions yeah so well when we were there so uh and that's just in in one of the brigade areas so it was a, it was a fascinating environment and uh but i think i was in you know, by then the conditions were much better because the logistics flies had been, you know, proven and formed and the accommodation was fine. Well, I even uh, had a shower in my room. Didn't oh. work. Didn't work. <laughs> Silly. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Honestly. Honest no, but it was great. So it was in this police station. And I had, had this room. And uh, awesome. to have a shower, you just poured a bottle of water over your head. Yeah. Done. Job done. But again, you were an officer. You probably got someone else to pour it over your head. No, 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 no. <laughs> there, there, there were no takers, Scotty. <laughs> so, um, Scotty, so was um, Kosovo your last um, your last tour? Was that your last kind of um, overseas tour? Was that kind of was that the beginning of the wind down of your military career? Um, it came back from um, Kosovo at the end of '99. Uh, and that's when things started to go awry a little bit. And I remember, in, I think it was 2001, I came back to um, Northern Ireland. There was another six-month tour. Um, 
and I was a covert driver for the EOD, which was the bomb disposal. Um, Felix, uh, the captain of nine lights. <laughs> and there was nine detachments at that time around the province, and I was um, assigned to Lisbon, which was headquarters, and to Armagh and Besbrook. Um, and as Rupert will tell you, that was Armagh and Besbrook uh, was like a bit like bandit country. Uh, you only Absolutely. went on the road for any certain things. But again, too, we've been uh, in the logistics and part of the uh, bomb disposal team. I would, didn't work on anything that went bang or stopping it from going bang. I was there to transport mainly in CMVs, which was white vehicles, basically cars, and then driving at speed with either uh, important people in the car or with kit and equipment that the teams need. So we were supplying the out units, basically. So there was many a times I was driving an old, uh, like a Peugeot 45, and the boot was full of plastic explosives, um, weapons, the whole thing. But back then, again, too, we had a card that we had. It was a, an EOD card. And it was when you got stopped at a checkpoint with the police, the police would open up your license like a normal. It was like Fablon papered license. And you'd have your ID card on one side, so you'd look like a, a normal civilian. And then on the other, I had EOD, um, please do not stop, basically, and signed by the, cons the chief constable and all the bits and bobs. So they didn't open your boot and find that it was like a fireworks display. Um, so, yeah, we, we moved all, all, kept all over, and uh, I, I went out on some of the jobs. There was a couple of jobs there that um, when Ato, who is the main bomb technician, dons a suit and goes out and has a look at a device. They have an infantry escort. There's a guy or an infantier attached. So basically he's keeping an eye because that ATO is worth a lot of money. And you know, for people to take that capability off the street would be devastating. So there was a couple of times I switched roles with our um, infantry escorts and I went out and did that job because I found it quite exciting um, to have my boots on the ground again and actually just protecting something quite important. But being seeing some good jobs um, go up and then come back down again was quite um, was quite good. And then after that, six months, I got a, a post in to Kiniga Logistics Base mm. and there I was in the training wing for my last three years in the Army as a training instructor taking guys on ranges and running a thing called MPCs, which was military proficiency courses, where we would take up 35, 40 um, junior NCOs, um, train them up so they become to either a level of section commander, basically they've got a basic or a better understanding than the basic soldier and field craft and weapons and, and more um, leadership type roles, I would say. So I, I did that for three years, and then I left in November in 2004. So you did, was that so 10 years altogether then? 10 years, just, just, it was November, November. You're probably maybe 10, 20 days shy of 10 years. Start, well, we'll round it up to 10 years. Thank you very much. But you sort of slightly undersold that job in that 
you know, there were, there were you driving around uh, essentially one of the best targets they could possibly have gone for. Uh, and there must have been, you know, a lot of training. Were you having a lot of fun on skid pans and doing that sort of thing as part of the build up, apart from the serious stuff, of course? Yeah, absolutely. We were doing work. <clears throat> Let's go back to, <clears throat> excuse me, back to um, Leckensfield and do advanced driving as such. But Again, too, we just used the weather to advantage. When it was raining, we cleared certain parts of car parks and then we put the back end of the vehicle onto skid pans or plates and put the handbrake on and just drive so that the back end would go out. So we just practice different manoeuvres. Um, but again, yeah, it was it was a, a, a really good job supporting the ATOs in the different locations, making sure simple things that the guys mail got there, um, the proper kit that they required for the task that they were doing and giving them a bit of um, bit of support. And again, when I was in that job, I was uh, already trained up to be a training instructor. So I was doing their basic um, weapon handling tests. I was doing part of their yearly drills. I was doing their map reading tests. I was doing the first aid tests. I was doing other bits and bobs to assist them. So it was, um, yeah, pretty pretty good job and you meet some really good characters and I've met a few Queen's Gallery Awards uh, Rick who's um, yeah he lives down in Belfast he's working with the PSNI at the moment so he, he was a, a he still is a fantastic character someone who can go down and back then Alex there's a thing called a wheelbarrow it's not what again you put your kit in and wheel it down but it's a mechanical robot that comes out the back of the truck that goes down um, powered by a big battery and it can open up like cameras and have a look at certain devices without the ATO actually getting close. So Rick was, he was out in a job and he sent the first wheelbarrow down that broke down and the battery died. The second one stuck on the ramp. And one of the, one of the things the operators call it is um, the longest walk where <laughs> the operator has all the kit on carrying a rasp which is a device that jams all signals and he does the longest walk on his on his own walks down to that device which is still live then disarms the whole thing um on his hands and knees three or four devices to make it safe um for the guys to carry out their their, their daily jobs and and being able to go out and support these sort of men and women I found it quite fascinating and you learn so much about that's what goes on it's not the fact of these guys make it safe but what they do is when they make it safe they make find out or they try and find out who made it and what sort of thing was activating something else and their technology and some people have different signatures of how to make things and put things together and it was quite interesting to see and it was always a nightmare as well when you were back um, and getting your dinner or such and then you go to the toilet and you open up the toilet lid and there's a big massive bright light goes off and it's a, the guys have set different devices around about the toilet which was quite amusing to them but it, <laughs> it was quite handy that I was in the toilet when some of the big things happened <laughs> it, it wasn't too far to go uh, um, which which was really good and I remember too we were we, this, is, this is quite funny. The thing called the rasp that the operator takes down to diffuse, or not diffuse, but to stop some of the jam. I remember one of the lads was on 
a telephone call and they were waiting to go and do something or I think they had a bit of gym time to go and do and he was on the phone. So they got this rasp out of the um, the truck um, and put it outside his door and turn it on. And you could hear him chatting to his missus going, hello? <laughs> hello, love. Are you still there? Hello? Couldn't hear her. Couldn't hear her whatsoever. Turned the thing off. Put it back in the truck. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah. Signal broke up there. I <laughs> had no idea how that happened. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> it was, um, in a way, it was, it was quite quite a fun job as well. And, uh, yeah, it was it was pretty damn good. The thing that I've kind of, you know, got from this is um, the camaraderie. That you that you that you get um, from from the military. So I mean, first um, to Scotty, um, what made you decide to um, to leave? What was the um, the turning point? What when when did you? I mean, I know we will speak about in uh, further podcasts um, some of the stuff that you went through. But at which point, when you were a training instructor, did you just to go? Nah, this isn't for me anymore. It was the the part of when my grades and reports as Rupert will testify the officers have to write up your reports and it goes on a grading system and then it goes through a panel and it's a lovely place it goes up to man and records where they decide if you meet the right criteria to criteria to be promoted and stuff and I've no idea why even our um, colonel was contacting me and saying I, I don't know why your grades were brilliant. We were putting you in the first of the regiment. Don't know why you're getting promoted, um, why you're not getting promoted. Um, so that happened after a couple of years. I and mean, in my last year, I just decided, I said, listen, maybe my time is, is better spent with something or someone that's going to be more appreciative of my sort of job or my sort of role. So that was it. Once then you, you, you hit the button, or well, back then you, you had to fill out the forms and and get it signed um, and that was your countdown clock for a year um, to sign off um, and that was it and that's when you have a year to put things into place and what you want to do on your uh, resettlement as such so you resettle back into civilian life I chose um, the same path as my Sergeant Major at the time to graduate and become a bodyguard and went to um, South Africa and did a five weeks uh, close protection course in Ronan, South Africa. And that was it. And then, as I said, I finished in November uh, in 2004 and then started a job in December 2004. And then went out to the Middle East and did all things with the British ambassador out in Saudi Arabia. Um, yeah, that was it. That um, was the kind of decision. The main decision for me to leave wasn't the fact of I, I did start to feel other things. I know that you were going to mention it in previous podcasts, but I started to feel a little bit unwell as uh, when I was doing the close protection role as well. Um, but previous to getting out, I started to feel a bit unwell. But we'll touch base more on that on a different podcast. Yeah, we'll go. We'll go into later. Um, I think you know. It's, it, I think we need to cover a whole podcast on uh, leaving the military because I think that's such a big thing. I don't think we we can just you know, skim over that. So we'll we will um, for everyone listening, we will actually speak more about um, what it's like leaving the military. Um, so Rupert, um, kind of Scotty explained um, why uh, his reasoning for um, deciding to end um, his military career. Um, what yeah. made you decide to end your military career? Um, well, I I I was very lucky. I had a, a string of wonderful jobs and 
work with some great people and then uh, I filled in one of those forms that we were talking about Scotty and I uh, earlier um, d didn't get my first choice should we say and uh, ended up uh, again with some great people but in an environment that you know it, it, it wasn't the most entertaining job I'd had and a lot of it was to do with um, options for change as it was called uh, earlier but it was about restructuring a lot of it was about restructuring things and reducing the size of the army and and I seemed to be uh, involved in picking apart something that you know I'd really enjoyed and I found that quite difficult uh, and then uh, I was working in an area which uh, did all the human resource stuff as well uh, and they came up with this thing that anyone in the last four years of service uh, if they want to go to reduce the size of the army then we'll give you a year's pay to get out and I went well I'm going to be getting out anyway uh, I've had a great time probably a good time to move on uh, so that that's really was my driver uh, and I ended up in Edinburgh uh, helping my wife's mother uh, or my mother-in-law uh, who needed a bit of help at the time and was lucky enough to do some work being a event manager on the Royal Edinburgh Military to tea so I I got into art darling and uh, it was fantastic I could still meet the pipes and drums and um, you know <laughs> it, 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 it was nice so I still had that sort of quasi-military link and I saw some of the guys uh, but it was really the people, don't you think, Scotty, that you miss in the end? It's that it's that camaraderie and it's that people do what they're going to they, they tell you they're going to do something and they do it. It's it's remarkable. But, you know, I found once I got out, people go, yeah, no, I'll crack that. And two weeks later, they come out and you say, have you cracked that? And they go, crack what? <laughs> and you go, you said you'd do this. And they, it just doesn't happen. I, 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 oh, it's a mindset this thing. Aimed at me. I'm joking. <laughs> no, no, it's not aimed at me. But you know what I mean. No, there it's is what I mean. To be fair. <laughs> and the bit where he says if people crack on, what he's saying is he's going to crack something over your head. And you don't get it done. <laughs> I just, as uh, everyone listening, no, give us time. Employees were harmed in the making of this. <laughs> Yeah, keep that in. I love that. <laughs> yeah. um, so both of you went and said, I think, you know, I, I, we will touch on it in a future podcast about um, the transition. But um, how would you sum up your 10 years in the military? I mean, uh, how would you sum it all up? Um, and maybe what would you tell a, yourself before, you know, a young, a young Scotty? What would you go and tell him about it or with all this experience you've learned? Well, um, to sum up the 10 years, it was, uh, for me, it was life-changing. Um, life-changing in, in the jobs that we did and life-changing in, in something that years later has kind of affected me um, up, to, up to this date now. But yeah, life-changing would be my sort of summary of the, the brief 10 years that I did. But to tell a young Scot who wanted to join the armed forces now, is that what I, was, I would say? Is that what you're saying, Alex? Yeah. Yeah, to, to tell a young Scotty who was, came to the door and asked me to join the armed forces, I would say, certainly a good choice 
as long as it wasn't the army. Um, I think the RAF and the Navy would be a better career choice for someone joining up, I would say now. Um, one, they'd probably see a bit more of the world. Um, and two, I would say those kind of um, Navy and Royal Air Force were probably, they, they may get looked after slightly better, I would say. Um, so for me, I would say maybe go down that sort of role. So Rupert, same question to you. I mean, how would you sum up your time in the um, in the armed forces, and what would you be going and telling, you know, yourself, you know, right before you went and joined? Yeah, I think I, you know, I, I, um, I, I had all sorts of uh, experiences uh, which you couldn't possibly get in any other environment. Uh, some of them were extremely exciting, if I can put them like that. Uh, some of them were uh, just, you know, astonishing. You know, I got to go scuba diving with my blokes in Hawaii, you know, with the US Marine Corps. And, you, and sometimes, you know, you'd be sitting in a snowdrift. I remember sitting in a snowdrift as a platoon commander training recruits, looking down at Edinburgh, and it was Baltic. And I could see the lights in the distance where I knew the pub was and all my mates. And at that stage, I thought... I wonder if this was a good plan, you know, but actually overall, I had a great time. And most of that was about the people. Uh, and if I was going to do it again, then I would. I've actually got one son who's in the army and he's he's loving it. Um, but if I was going to do it again, I'd go, don't resist. You know, I was a, argumentative. I was a teenager and uh, when I joined, I resisted stuff. Because, you know, Forrest knew best and Forrest did this. And and it made training so much more difficult because I was making it difficult for myself. All I had to do was do what I was bloody told to do. But I wasn't used to that concept. Once I'd got it, it was fine. So I think, I think you know, if you're going to do it, embrace it and, and you'll get the most out of it. You know, my dad started as a, uh, a private soldier in the Algarves because he was signed up on national service had a great time he really did and um you know it it made me who i am and yeah no i'd, I'd, I'd do it again scotty i'm seeing a lot of nodding over there what do you want to add to this absolutely well hearing that rupert was obviously um, scuba diving in hawaii and stuff um when some <laughs> people were still working um when i joined up there was an advert on the tv and rupert will remember this there was a guy who used to ski perfectly down a hill and there was an arrow behind him. And the same guy in the distance was walking on a beach hand in hand with a beautiful lady. And the same guy was doing something else. And it says, be like Frank <laughs> in the army. I joined the army and I've never met this bloody Frank. But the thing is, to be honest, <laughs> you've probably been like Frank more than anybody else by the sounds of things. No, I thought you know. tour, Hong Kong, scuba diving, Hawaii. Yeah, dear God. Yeah, uh, yeah. But then, you know, I had to do quite a lot of time sitting under bushes for um extended period of time when it was Baltic, as you did. Um so yeah, pros and cons. Pros and cons. Pros and cons. <laughs> had some lucky pros, you know. Uh, cons. <laughs> and what yeah. about you, Alex? How did you manage? Let's turn this back on you now quickly. 
How did you come to get in to be in this unique position of working with this wonderful, bespoke, small military charity, Give Us Time? I think for me, I've always wanted to work um, with a charity. And I think you don't, I think one of the biggest learning curves I've had is, I think, if, as someone who's never been in the military, never experienced it, I think people don't realise, especially the uh, the intensity. And I mean, uh, the you know, you are sacrificing a lot. Um, and I think it's very, it's incredibly interesting, I think, to, which is why we're, we're doing this, um, to hear your sides of it all. Um, one thing I do want to clear up, though, is I've always, you see all these things going on. When you're sitting out there in the middle of, in the middle of a, um, you know, you're in a, you know, you're in a sentry position for, for your training, and you're sitting there in the, in the freezing cold, what do you do in those little holes? What are you... <laughs> you don't want to know. <laughs> what, what are you doing in those little holes when you're sitting there, just doing nothing? What you, you you're watching a fixed point. I mean, I know you're meant to you're meant to go in there, sit there, watch the enemy, and for trying then leave. How do you pass that time? Scotty's laughing away. <laughs> I need to know, know Scotty. How much? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's Do like a... you want to lead on that one, Scotty? Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, obviously the main answer was to make sure that the people back in the harbour area are safe and secure, and you're ob observation ob observing your arcs of fire. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's observation. And, That's what it was called, wasn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> How did we amuse ourselves? Well, <clears throat> we would um, maybe crack a couple of wee jokes, either share. Um, some sort of sweetie or if somebody was smoking they would try and hide the, the little orange glow from a cigarette <laughs> under a helmet or something else but it was, um, yeah we just kind of amused ourselves really or um, yeah it depends on the sort of place where you were, you had to uh, there was no such thing as bathrooms or bits and bobs so we had to what he, um, basically you had to take <laughs> what you put out with you in a bag and then carry it so now, Scott, do you want to expand on that a little bit more for, uh, for all our listeners there? You said you have to take out, you know, you can leave nothing behind. So how do you make sure you leave nothing behind? Black bags, to be honest. If you needed a pee, you'd pee in it, um, scoop out all the air and then tie a knot on it. And again, too, if you had to um, uh, defecate or, um, yes, if you, same thing, just bag it up, tie it and carry it. So your rucksack was obviously full of, you know, to an extent, human waste then for when absolutely. you absolutely or you would find you would find the troopies bergen and maybe put it in the top part of his his map case of a plc bergen and he would have to carry you that as well as his own which was quite funny yeah no i mean <laughs> absolutely i'm afraid the the um the realities of life come to the fore but it's it makes a very good hand warmer doesn't it scotty Absolutely. And your own is slightly better than someone else's. Um, <laughs> We've spoken about both of your lives in the military. Scotty's, I mean, Rupert's are going to be better because I want to know your favourite your favorite memory and moment from when you were in the military. Now, I know Rupert's got scuba diving and in Hawaii. And I know Scotty, when Scotty says in a car in Cataract, it's not going to be the same. But No, but, but actually, you know, favourite moments. 
very. You know, I, I remember going down as a young platoon commander and we were, I was going on my first exercise and, you know, I had you know, the complication of four vehicles and four crews and, and this car pulls up and out gets this young woman and this child. And I'm sort of, we've got two seconds before we're meant to move. And wife gets that, husband appears and the child walks for the first time that a dad's seen it towards the husband and you just go is this important and you but you can see it on their faces and the whole team sort of stops whoa that's amazing and then it's right gotta go darling charging car gone into the wagons off not going to see them for another month but you know it's moments like that where you're involved in other people's lives that it makes you know real impact and you think hmm, i wonder if i'll be doing that one day and of course you do you know oh. you get married and, yeah there you are but yeah so actually those are really the moments yeah oh, and, you, and you forget about the you know the helicopter crashes and <laughs> yeah, <it's laughs> all the, the unpleasant um, dramas uh, that you get involved in everywhere so. you go there's always good parts and you do kind of remember the good parts than the not so good parts but that's like any job you have good days and bad days i suppose yeah fun days but in the military it was um because we were close-knit and everybody was close together and you had to rely on each other that the sort of camaraderie and, and and the closeness was um that did carry a long way and yeah absolutely there was good times what is your um, favorite can you think of a favorite moment in particular or is it they're just too quiet my favourite time would be I was watching a man scuba dive in Hawaii <laughs> while I was, that was um, as you, oh look at that, wouldn't that be lovely at some time, but obviously that was it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's my sort of best time in the military I would say is when um, I got posted over here and uh, through a friend ended up at a wedding and that's where I met my wife Joanne, or my wife yeah. Joanne, so that would be my best time that I've um, in the military, I can say. Oh, just be that, Rupert. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. No, absolutely. No, I was about to say because I missed a bit earlier on. Um, when you went to your regiment, my my first thing was having to go down the morning after, um, and to see the adjutant to sign on. Uh, and I remember we had a really tall commanding officer at the time and a really short RSS beast he was. And uh, I arrived at, outside the office and there were two of us there. And I remember this tiny chap coming along with his RSM's badge and his stick. And he just looked us up and down very slowly, shook his head and walked into the edge. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Yeah, back then too. The yeah, not not impressed. Uh, not impressed. The RSM, you know, day one, not impressed. Back then too, hey. Alex, the RSM was the senior uh, soldier, basically. Yeah. Um, and he had soldiers and um, or other ranks and then officers. Or, uh, but he was the senior man. And I remember in Cataract, we and he used to hear the big ammo boots clip up towards <laughs> the the squadron lines. And honestly guys were hiding in tool bins and everything and if you could get a brush and a duster you'd be sweeping and polishing something at the same time because oh. you know if something was wrong you got the old um 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, you got the old telling off. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was going to jump back a little, uh, quite a bit to the beginning, Pip. You know, we spoke about your first days and everything. I mean, when you go and join up, Scott, were you still in Scotland, in Dumfries, or were you sent all the way down into to the... Because uh, I know, obviously, Rupert, you were in the Black Watch. Yeah. So were, were you sent from... Uh, were you just sent up to, up into Scotland? Or... No, I, 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 did, I saw the regiment. The, the regiment only saw me to interview me uh, before I went to Sandhurst. Uh, and then... They had a black watch officer at Sandhurst who kept an eye on, you know, whether I was going to be a disaster or not. Um, don't comment, Scotty. And um, <laughs> and uh, I didn't see the regiment until I was commissioned. Just a little uh, tip for anyone who, who isn't aware. Do you want to, Rupert, do you want to explain a little bit more about what Sandhurst is just uh, just quickly? Yeah, so Sandhurst, the uh, Officer Training School, or the Rupert Factory, uh, as it's known. Uh, but essentially, you go through basic training. Uh, you do all the same stuff. It's a bit longer because you take it in turn. So when you're being taught section attacks, uh, one of you will actually be the commander, having been taught how to do it. Uh, and you'll all get a turn being the commander of various attacks. And then, you know, they build it up. So eventually... You know, you you have what they call the cadet government uh, and you have a company sergeant major and you've got between commanders and you rotate roles. Um, so you get experience in each job, in each environment. Uh, and those are your tests, really. Or, you know, and you do all the, the other roles as well. So you might be carrying the machine gun or be the section two IC that day uh, and have to carry out those responsibilities. So it's uh, it's sort of doing the basic training with with leadership over the top and then you know if you're infantry or you know you're a logistics guy or girl you'll go off uh, and do your logistics training on top of that uh, and the same you know i went off to warminster and spent was it four months living in a hole basically um well two 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 months of it was living in woods and holes uh, and the other two months was learning how to run ranges and and do all that stuff um which were role specific so to, an, to a, quite an extent, even though both you were both in the the army, you both had incredibly different experiences within mm. within a degree. Then, which is I think quite quite interesting because I think a lot of people assume everyone in the army receives. Well, I for one assumed everyone in the army received the same training. I was unaware of um, you know the different level of Sandhurst. And I forgive me again. What where's the other one? Where did you go to, Scotty? Then. Mine was, when I first uh, went to the careers office was in Dumfries. And then after that, they put you on a three-day assessment training. And I had to go up to, as Rupert will know, Glencourse. Yeah. yeah. Glencourse still exists, but Glencourse yeah, training, training centre, we had to uh, run and do medicals and do a basic, basic three-day induction of what we're going to be experiencing. Um, and then our... Um, 15 week was it 15 week um yeah. course was down in purbright down in surrey so i had to jump on the wee train with an old rubbish wee shoot suitcase and then travel down there and get off a member blackwood station and walk up to the guard room and then that was it um yeah that's when you just become a number now, i mean <laughs> silly, silly again question i mean so you were sorry scott you were you were 20 when you joined up did, did you say 
17 and a bit, I think. Uh, 18, yeah. Was it in training for 18 or was it out? But yeah, there or thereabouts. I mean, just what you're just 17, 18 years old and you've got to get a, a train from Dumfries to Surrey. I mean, that is, it's, you know. Yeah, I should, I, I, I should have been commissioned just for even doing that journey without being lost. And that was the. Or, or doing Sandhurst. Yeah, I'll do a Sandhurst, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, where in Sandhurst, they probably miss out map reading. And then the worst thing is, you never give an officer a map. Ever. <laughs> that right, Rupert? That's right, yeah. <laughs> They're quite good at GPS. Yeah. <laughs> <They>, uh... <laughs> oh, oh, life's got a lot easier, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. No, oh, I, I, learned, I learned in the end. You spoke about they break you to remould you a little bit. How true would you say that sentence is? I mean, I've I've spoken to a few uh, obviously soldiers throughout my time working with give us time, and I mean, would you say that that's a true a true statement, or do you say that you just kind of they're not breaking you, they're just getting they're getting you into what the army is? Well, they say that they are um, they, they ship you into shape um, quickly. And it has to be that sort of shock of arriving up and being being that place, move there now, eat there, do this. Because it, it has to be, at the end of the day, you're, you're putting your life on your line to follow a set of instructions or orders. You've got to be able to react to that. And being a civilian straight then into military life, that is, you can't just take your time or do anything. It has to be that. And back then in the, in the 90s, it was... That's the way they did it, you know. That's the way they shaped you to become a soldier, and they only have a certain period of time to get you into that shape. Um, and you know that's the way it was. And there was, if you didn't fit it, then you were booted out. Uh, it was, um, yeah. and the thing is, it was. I remember it was. Yeah, you did. Uh, I'm probably painting the wrong picture here, but it was. Um, yeah. You had to be at the right place at the right time with the right kit and learn and stuff. And if you got it wrong, by God, Daddy, did you get punished for it? And if you got it right, you didn't get punished. So, or, or a change parade or other bits and bobs. It was just you got things taken off. You weren't allowed to go to the NAFI or other bits and bobs. Or yeah, it was. It was in a way. It had to be that way. Um, for a reason to get you into shape and if you weren't willing to get into shape then you sh i don't think you should have been there anyway yeah. uh, exactly the same you know if, if you if your kit wasn't upstanding in the morning it got launched and that meant you were going to make you know spend the whole of the next night doing it all again and getting all the chips out of your polish and god so you you sort of got it got all the basics right and that made everything easier. But you didn't understand that initially. Because um, you can't have, you know, right, double away over there and sort of, well, it's raining. You know, you don't bin all the baggage, you know, and then you get, and the job gets done. And that and that's what it's about, is about um, having people who will react appropriately without, you know, and quickly and do the right thing. Um, and And you get that and then, once once you're through the painful process uh it works and you understand but it, it's uh, and that's why i said you know if there's one thing 
that I tell myself is embrace it. Don't don't fight against the, you know, well, I don't want to eat that meal. I want to have something else. Well, that's the meal. And you've got about three minutes to eat the lot. And if you haven't eaten it, then you're off on the next thing and you won't eat. So, you know, it's your choice. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think it was, you know, <clears throat> the style and the environment then was, you know, you had to, and if they told you to eat something, it wasn't for, um, because they said it, you eat it because you're going to be on a, a tab for eight hours carrying such and such, or you're going to be up all night, or you're going to be doing drill, or you're going to be doing ranges. And if you don't eat the right fuel, and that's what it is, fuel for your body. And then if you fainted yeah. or went down or, you, you know, you, you just, you weren't in the right frame of mind then to carry out the task. So again, too, it's, being at the right place at the right time with the right kit and having the right energy and stuff um, and sense of humour. And yeah. humour is a big thing too. Again too, it's, um, yeah, you, you look back at it now, we would laugh as Rupert says they launched the kit out the room. It was, uh, when I was there, you had to have your bed all set up, the bed block and all your kit was all over and your brasses were all done and the trainer instructors used to, I used to stand there and he used to turn and go, right, Nolan was opposite me. He said, right, Derek, Derek throw Nolan's bed at the window. Okay, sir. <laughs> yeah. And the whole, the whole bed went out. You could see Nolan's yeah. face going, try and get the boots to land upright. Try and get them to land perfectly. Nah. And then it was like, Jones, Derek's kit, window. <laughs> so <laughs> you just had to play the game, you know, play the game. If they said jump, you said how high. Um, and... Yeah. That's the way it was. And once they, they kind of get to know who the characters were or the guys who would do it, they would lean on you a little bit more to maybe help some of the others to progress yeah. uh, a lot quicker. But, yeah. Uh, they, they had a stick, didn't they, with little red bits at the end. And your bed block had to be exactly as per the stick. So a lot of us, uh, if you couldn't be bothered to do your kit, lean you'd sleep in your sleeping bag under the bed with your bed made mm -hmm. up. Yeah, you wouldn't sleep in bed, you'd and sleep yeah, on and, the floor. Yeah, and you'd get a couple of days, and in would come the self on, and he'd measure it up, and it'd be perfect, because you'd see it, and he'd go, launch. <laughs> <laughs> because he knew that you were sleeping under the bed in there. Yeah. So, you know, and, the, and he'd go, sleep in the bed, sir. There you go. Right, staff. <laughs> <laughs> so it was good. It was an education. And it, it, it didn't do me any harm. No, it did not. As I said, the character building, it certainly does um, make you a bit more, um, you appreciate life a lot better. You look at things through a different set of glasses. Um, yeah. yeah, it was there It was there to serve a purpose and it was there to do a job at that time. Now things today are probably slightly different, but again, with modern society and stuff, they're still there to produce men and women to do a job for this time. Yeah. That's the way it is. Even if they don't have to eat bacon grill anymore. Oh, bacon grill. What's a bacon <laughs> grill? <laughs> it was a tin of something called cold bacon grill that was sort of meaty, wasn't it? Kind of meaty. And yeah, and food could, would be better than bacon grill. And you could cook it in the tin on a hexi block burner and it would get crisp around the outside and then you could slice it and you just didn't eat the bottom bit that had the metal 
the metal bit that had come off the tin on. It's brilliant on a on a on an icy morning when there was nothing else. Oh, well, biscuit brown um, biscuits, fruit, fruit biscuits or biscuits brown, and you had a little sort of thing like this size. Um, where's the, that size there, Alex? Yeah. But the size of a a razor blade, and it was a, a tin opener. Yeah. <laughs> you, remember the old metal ones, Rupert? And you know, they yeah. cut your, and you used to get like in your rations packs, cheese and stuff, and then processed cheese. Pro oh, yeah. I've also heard of um, uh, is it uh, an egg banjo being? Oh, an egg banjo. Oh, egg banjos are all right. You know why it's an egg banjo, don't you? And look, do tell me. Because if you eat an egg sandwich, what happens? Oh, it falls out Run of down, you. Ah. down. <laughs> That's the banjo. That's the egg banjo. Oh. Fantastic. Yeah. And it has to be a nice, a nice fried runny egg too. And the thing is, back then when the guys were coming back from their bricks or multiples in Northern Ireland, used to have, the chef used to be up for 24 hours because we're constantly yeah. in, in and out, resupplying, and getting back out. And you just run in, there was loaves of bread, there was margarine, there was that there. You went up to the chef and you say, oh, chef, two or three egg banjos, slap it on, wallop it, full of sauce, halfway down your kit, Mug of tea, um, bomb up, and away we go again. Yeah, that's the way it was. <laughs> no time, to, no time to stop, constantly moving. No time, you should do it at the weekend. Get yourself a nice slice of whatever bread you like, and then get a nice big egg, put it in the frying pan, fry it up so it's nice and runny, put it inside the sandwich. And then experience it for yourself. There's not nothing else would match it. It's quite nice, actually. And then, <laughs> and then when you walk to the shop, if you go into Miller to Garrison, and if you have a nice big run of egg down your front, people look at you and respect you for it, Alex. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's all we've got time for today. Uh, thank you very much, Scotty and Rupert, for sharing their stories about their time in the military. Uh, if you like this podcast, please like and follow. Give us time social media pages. And we will be back very soon with a World Mental Health Day podcast. Thank you very much for listening.